Matthew 5, 14. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I would like to speak from the words of Jesus to his disciples, the first sentence of Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. God bless you. Please be seated. Let's dig into the Bible for a little bit this evening. This past Sunday, in case you were gone, I preached on let there be light. In the beginning, the Lord spoke light into existence and then created everything that is. And then I, I talked about this on Sunday. The Bible establishes the principles of spiritual darkness and spiritual light, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. We believe that salvation is a supernatural act of God in our lives, that the spirit of the Lord by his power changes us just as his word brought light and life in the beginning. Amen. We were saved when the Lord spiritually said, I'm just kind of making this analogy, let there be light in our souls. And he drove out the darkness of sin. He drove out the hopelessness of despair and eternal condemnation. Amen. Light always exposes and dispels the darkness. Spiritual light in the Bible is life. It is purity. It is holiness. And when Jesus was in the world, he was the light of the world. John 9, 4 and 5. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Jesus as the light of the world. That's probably another message. And I think we get that idea. But we know from John that he came into this world and the world, he was light. And this light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not comprehend it or could not put it out. Jesus said in John 12, 35 and 36, and Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Of course, that's true in the natural, and that's true in the spiritual. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So we understand that Jesus was the light of the world. As long as he was in the world, he was the light of the world. But then in the Sermon on the Mount, our text he told them, you are the light of the world. I'm going to read this again and make a few comments about this passage. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Then he applies this analogy. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So by virtue of being a follower of Jesus Christ, we are the light of the world. You may feel that your light is a little dim at times, that your battery needs to be recharged, but on your worst day, as a spirit-filled child of God, you are the light of a very dark world. Amen. Amen. We underestimate the power of the Spirit of God in us. We underestimate the light that is in us and the effect that it has on other people. Amen. We represent Jesus Christ in the world. Amen. Now, Jesus, when he said, you're the light of the world, you're like a city that is set on the hill that cannot be hid. If you've ever been in a hilly area and saw a distant city, you would understand what Jesus meant. In those days, when there were no street lights, mostly, I don't think, but you could see a city that was on a hill from a great distance, and you would know that there is a place of life, hopefully food, shelter, water, protection. Way off in the distance, if you're a traveler, you can see that there's a city. Why would you put that city on a hill if you didn't want anyone to find it? If you wanted to be inconspicuous, you would tuck your city away in a valley somewhere when no one could find it. You'd make sure that there were no lights at night. But Jesus said, I made you a conspicuous people. You cannot hide and you shouldn't run. I made you to be a people who others could see at a distance and they would know that there is a place of safety and shelter, a place of welcome for me. Amen. You are the light of the world. And Jesus explains that he did not intend for us to be camouflaged or hidden, a city set on a hill. And then he gives this other simple illustration. If Jesus could use it as simple as it is, then I guess it's okay for me to use it too. Men don't light a candle and then put it under a shade that completely covers it. Why would you go to the trouble of lighting a candle, wasting the energy, and then covering it up where no one could see it? Jesus said, of course, no one does that. If you light a candle, then you put it on a lampstand. Now, if you've ever been camping out in the woods, maybe in a tent, and all you had was a little lantern, it was really dark everywhere else, then you know that single source of light meant a lot in that moment. Amen. So that's what Jesus is talking about. There's a house, there's no electricity, there's no other source of light. It is completely dark. But in order to illuminate that environment, the owner of the home lights a candle. But he realizes if it's way down here, it can't do as much good as if it's way up here higher. And he realizes that if he puts a, a covering over it, not like a lampshade that you use in your house to kind of make a little ambiance there, but if you put a shade on it, then you're wasting the energy of the light. So now you lift it high and you make sure that it gives light, as Jesus said, to all that are in the house. He wants everybody in the house to be able to have a little light 
and to be able to see. You are the light of the world. It gives light to all that are in the house. And then Jesus said, verse 16 on the screens, let your light, and now he's applying this, right? So you're like a city set on the hill. You're like a candle lit in a house. Let your light shine just like that. Let your life be the kind of life that reflects the glory of God that people can see from a great distance to people who are otherwise in darkness would see your testimony at school, at work, in the neighborhood, when you stop at a convenience store or go shopping somewhere or wherever you are, if they look long enough, and maybe it's just a moment, they will be able to see that you are different. Now, I believe that primarily Jesus is speaking of our character, our conduct. It has to do with our attitude. There's a lot of things that people get upset about and cause fusses over that really aren't worth it. Why don't you let it go? The Bible even says, rather be defrauded. Go ahead and take it wrongfully so that your light is not dimmed or covered by a bad attitude or poor behavior, amen, or terrible conduct. Jesus wants you to give light to all that are in the house. So quit being a bad example of the love of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your godly life. And then when they see you, according to the words of Jesus, and I love this passage and, you know, it goes way back for me in personal experience and teaching and preaching and, you know, let your light shine in such a way that when people see you, they don't just see you, but they see Jesus Christ in you. They, they glorify your father, which is in heaven. They say nobody could be like that on their own. Nobody could love like that, be kind like that, put up with a bad situation like that, unless God is working in them and through them. And I know I told you, I believe this is about the character of a Christian, but our appearance, the way we conduct ourselves is a stark contrast to the attitudes, the actions, and the appearance of the world. Don't hide in the dark. Let your light shine. It's okay to be different. That's how God designed his church. Now, in those days, there were five major religious groups or sects. One of them was the Essenes. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically talk about them so much by direct name, but by contrast, Jesus was, they had been alluding to the Essenes. They wanted to be really holy. They did not want to be contaminated by the world. So they lived a communal life. They withdrew from public life. They didn't want to get next to you because you might, you, I'm talking about if you were a sinner, you might rub off on them. You might defile them. So they felt so insecure and in their holiness that they hid from everybody else in life. They did not let their light shine. They put it under a bushel. And if they had anything to give, they certainly were not willing to give it. Amen. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, we like to say, ate with sinners, tax collectors, publicans, had a conversation with the woman of ill repute at a well. He did not join in their sin, right? But he was guilty sometimes by association. I do not believe in any way he compromised his moral purity or his reputation, but people were looking for a flaw in him and they tried to find it. Amen. 
He met people on common ground. You've heard about that already tonight. That's what small groups is about. But guess what? That's what work is about. That's what school is about. That's what neighborhoods are about. I know you can do a lot of things online all the way from shop to work, but you're not supposed to never be around people. They need you. They need to see you. They need to hear somebody with a, with, with a positive word. They need to see somebody with a smile. They need to feel hope that comes out of your life because you know no matter what happens in this life, you have hope for heaven. You're the light of the world. Amen. And Jesus has no intention of tucking you away so you'll be safe. In the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples in John 17, Jesus said, I do not pray that you will take them out of the world, but I pray that you will keep them from the evil. Amen. Keep them in the world, but keep them from the evil. Don't lead them into temptation, but deliver from them from evil was his prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. Amen. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, Jesus' teachings became the model for the epistles, the letters written back to the churches. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those letters about the life and times of Jesus Christ, his words and works, the book of Acts, early church history, the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to the uttermost parts of the world, all the ramifications and the barriers that it overcame. Acts is that unique book, the fifth book in the New Testament. Everything written after that was written to help believers live a holy life. That's why you'll find doctrine about salvation, but the plan of salvation you will find in the book of Acts. The New Testament writers of the epistles, these letters back to the churches, had the references of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and then they begin to practically apply this to all of these believers. And we know that there were Jewish Christians, but there were also a lot of Gentile Christians. They did not have even a fraction of what most Americans have in terms of knowing something about God. And I know that we're in a progressively pagan culture, but some of them came from a culture that had nothing, no Judaism, maybe no synagogue in those cities. It was a dark world. It was not a strobe light world. It was a dark world. You got to work with what you've got, you know. And if you remember what I said on Sunday, in heaven, there is no need or the sun, no technology in heaven. The lamb will be the light of that city. And until then, there'll be technology and there'll be challenges. <laughs> All right. So I always like to have some special effects, you know, while I'm trying to teach. And There are numerous passages in the New Testament that paint this analogy of light and darkness uh, all throughout the Bible. I'm not going to go through all of them tonight, thankfully. I will read and refer to some and drill down, especially into Ephesians 5. But Ephesians 5, Romans, 12, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 2, 1 John 1, 1 John 2. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. If you have a Bible on a device or a, a real Bible like this, you can open it to Ephesians 5 and 1. 
Ephesians 5 and 1. Amen. I feel brighter than I did just a moment ago. Now I feel darker. <laughs> this service is being streamed. Everyone watching, we've just spent a pretty good bit of money on a lot of upgrades and always there are challenges and glitches that we're working with, feverishly working with, even as I teach. So I'm having a little fun, but just because no matter what you do, you will, that's the way it's going to be. So while we're kind of working on that, I'll give you a testimony. A week and a half ago, the M key, M is in mother, on my computer, decided to stop working. Do you know how many times you use the letter M in typing a sermon? <laughs> it started late at night as I was working. It was very difficult. And all I'm going to say is that, and God has delivered me from it, though, and... <laughs> Ephesians 5 and 1. We're going to go through this passage. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. In other words, Jesus loved us. We're followers of him. And he wants us to be a testimony in the world. We are to imitate Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen. Be followers of me, Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. So not just in our appearance, but in every part of our lives, we're to imitate Jesus Christ. We're to walk in love, just as he walked in love and sacrificed his life for our sins. Now, immediately after this, Paul dives into a passage about what ungodly people live like. And I'm going to read this, just go through it in the New Living Translation. And we'll get back to it a little later, hopefully. And he says to them, let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. I've seen stories foolish talk, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure, Paul wrote, that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of the world. This wasn't in my mind till right now, but that's why I thank God that this is a generous church because greedy people are idolaters. They worship money and the things of the world. He said, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse those sins for the anger of God will fall all on who, dis all on who disobey him. So Paul says, you're supposed to imitate Jesus Christ. You should not live like this. Now look at Ephesians 5 and 7. I'm going right back into King James, be not ye therefore partakers with them. All those things that I just talked about, all the immorality and the greed, Paul said, don't partake of those things with them. For you were sometimes darkness. We're going to try to get in sync here. You were sometimes darkness. It didn't work at all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but now 
You are light in the Lord. Ta-da. Then he said, walk as children of light. Look at your neighbor and just say, you are the light of the world. Amen. You're the light in the Lord and you're supposed to walk as children of light. But the fruit of the spirit, and in, I don't have time to get into the word study of this, the fruit of this light in our lives, maybe a more appropriate, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So when you are the light of the Lord, the fruit of this in your life is goodness and right living and truth. Amen. Then he says in verse 10, proving or living out what is acceptable unto the Lord. Paul says you have no business partaking in the immoral practices of ungodly people. He said you were that in the past, but now you are different. You were, but now you are. You were darkness. Now you're light. Amen. I've read studies through the years, and I went back and found one. It's a little too old to kind of say that this is concurrent, but I don't think things have changed so much. But Barna Research, they, they asked numerous questions of people who said they were believers and people who said they were unbelievers. I've read some studies that said that in some surveys, they found that people who call themselves Christians lied with the same frequency as people who said they were not Christians. That's terrible, right? Barna said that born-again individuals, in their definition, would not be apostolic, but people who have accepted Christ, whatever their standard of salvation might be, were twice as likely to not watch a movie because of its rating, 27% versus 14%. So just on the face of it, they'd say, oh, this movie is rated whatever, and so you shouldn't watch that movie because of its rating. And then they were somewhat more likely to turn off a TV program that presented values or viewpoints that they did not like. So in the middle of watching a TV show, these people, this is a wide range of people not taken among United Pentecostal Church people, 47% versus 39%. That means 53% of the people who call themselves Christians would not turn it off. Just keep on watching. I mean, it's a good story, so why ruin the storyline? Just because there's a lot of immoral stuff going on, you don't want to miss the story, right? So that's what happens. But then he said, however, there was no difference evident when it came to the likelihood of viewing adult-only content on the internet or discussing a specific moral issue or reading magazines or watching videos with explicit sexual content. And when I read that, I just went, what, are you kidding me? To borrow the words of the Apostle James in James 3.10, I love the awkward King James here, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. This is not the way we live. You were darkness. Now you're light. Amen. 5.11 of Ephesians. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame to even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now, this is your Bible. 
You can interpret this how you want, but why don't we take it at face value? There are some things that are done in this world that are so despicable, so filthy, that the Bible says you shouldn't even talk about it. At the, at the end of the second service on Sunday, not the first service, it wasn't in my notes. During worship, I looked up this verse, screenshot it on my phone. I talked about this at the end of the altar of the second service. This passage, Ephesians 5, that where Paul said, these things should not be done. Fellowship and reaching people on common ground are two different things. I qualified this about Jesus earlier. Amen. Fellowship is sharing life. It is a bond that you have with others. 2 Corinthians 6.14 speaks to this same idea. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness. So Paul reiterates what Jesus said that fellowship, this bond, and he talks about an unequal yoke. Just to remind you, if you don't know this, I was first time a revelation, a yoke is something we don't know much about. But it was something that would keep two animals working together. It was a collar that went over each animal. And it forced them to work together. But in the Bible, you do not plow an ox, a big animal, with a donkey, a little animal. That's the, that's the imagery here. They don't get along. They don't, I don't want to say they don't get along. They don't work well together. There's going to be continual, this stronger animal is always going to be working in a different pace than this smaller animal. That's the imagery of the yoke, an unequal yoke. And it harkens back to Old Testament teaching about not plowing these two various different animals, right? That's what Paul is talking about in the word of God. Amen. And Paul calls the conduct of these Ephesian sinners the unfruitful works of darkness. So I was studying this. I ran across Adam Clark, you know, is one of the kind of not considered the super intellectual theologians, but I think he's amazing. He said that Paul may have been alluding to the pagan practices to the worship of Bacchus, who is the Roman god of agriculture, wine and fertility. He's the equivalent of the Greek god Dionysus. And you can read a little bit about this, but it was every immoral practice that you could fathom took place in the worship of this Roman or Greek god. And Paul said that you should not join with them. You should reprove them, rebuke them. Now, Paul doesn't go into the detail of this type of idolatrous worship because he says you shouldn't even talk about it. So I've got to be careful right now because I can't too talk, talk too much about it. Amen. The behavior was so vile. Amen. He tells him, this goes back now to what I read in the New Living Translation earlier. Remember, these are Ephesian Christians. They're living in a really pagan culture where they're worshiping idolatrous gods and there's every kind of vice imaginable tied to worship. And he tells him that fornication and all uncleanness or covetous, let it not be once, not even once, named among you as becometh saints. 
neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, right? Ungodly jokes, which are not convenient, but rather giving thanks. For this you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you. Don't let anybody tell you that you can be a Christian and live like that at the same time. Don't deceive yourself. You know, you can say to the pure, all things are pure. That is not what that verse is talking about. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He speaks about fornication, all kinds of sexual immorality. The word pornea can apply to not just adultery or a premarital relationship, but all kinds of unclean, all kinds of uh, immorality. But then he uses the word uncleanness, which is perverted immoral behavior, such as sodomy or bestiality. In verse three, he says it shouldn't be named among us who are called saints. And then in verse 12, I'm going to read it again, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Don't talk about it. Don't watch it. Don't read it. Don't go there. Amen? So I take this under advisement of the Bible that to speak of ungodly behavior, that I want to be careful that it doesn't evoke a curiosity in sin. Amen? These practices, the bacchanalian practices, were performed at night and in the darkness, were known to be so impure and abominable, especially in this behavior of worshiping Bacchus, that the Roman Senate, the Roman Senate, banished them from Rome and Italy. It was so ungodly, even in a pagan culture, that they banished it from their life. There's a lot. There's a lot of sin in our culture. But it didn't start in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. It didn't start in the, this millennial. It goes all the way back to the fallen nature of man. And when you read the Bible, these same sins, what's dangerous when it's always dangerous and wrong, but when they become prevalent, when they, they become the norm, when they become like Sodom and Gomorrah, where it is more the rule than the exception as it is affecting in our, in our, in our culture. There's a parade connected to Mardi Gras that has the same, the Bacchus, this worship of Bacchus, wild festivals, depiction of this, depictions of this show unbelievably lewd behavior. And a, 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 a parade connected to this in Mardi Gras in New Orleans is to the pagan god of immorality. So what we need to do as Christians is say, not me, not my family, not there, not them. Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. So we should not entertain ourselves with the debauchery of our culture. Excessive indulgence, sensual pleasures, not for us. And this is where it's in my notes where I spoke about this at the end of the second service. If you will remember, it was in Ephesus when the gospel was preached there that they riled up the people and they went into a stadium, Acts 19, 34. And for two hours, they cried, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You see, they got all riled up because they thought that their craft of producing idols was in jeopardy. 
So they got everybody all worked up about this. This was Ephesus. It was in Ephesus, the same place that this book is written to these people. This is where they live. They lived in a culture where everybody were, and I'm not trying to get all carried away talking about all kinds of sports, but I think there's a danger, right? In worldly events, whatever it is. But if you looked, their, their gear was all about Diana, the Ephesians. That's who they worship. And when there was a revival there, something amazing happened in Acts chapter 19. In Ephesus, fear fell upon them. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified. And many that believed, people that got converted in this ungodly, pagan, perverted city. You think, man, there's no hope for those people. Well, there was hope for people in Ephesus. And this book we're studying tonight was written as a result of this revival to help these people know how to live after they had been converted. They came and they confessed and they showed their deeds. And many of them brought their curious arts. They, they practiced witchcraft and incantations. They brought their books together. They burned them in a public place. Can you imagine getting on the town square where everybody will know they're coming out in public and saying, we're turning away from all of these ungodly practices. We're turning our lives over to Jesus Christ. We were just in the temple crying, great as Diana the Ephesians, but now here we are burning all these ungodly books. They counted the price of them. The New Living Translation says there were several million dollars worth of books. 50,000 pieces of silver, the King James says. That is a revival. That's a revival of cleaning out hearts and homes and lives, and getting rid of everything that doesn't belong. And those were people who were just coming to Jesus. Amen. Ephesus. It happened there. Amen. In a different context, Paul said, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Ephesians 5.13 in our passage. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, or whatsoever doth make manifest is light. That's an awkwardly worded verse in the good old King James, but what it means is as bad as those people are, when godly people come in contact them within the power of the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ can shine to them, convict them, reprove them, and they can actually change their behavior and come into the light. You have a powerful work to do in the lives of people. Now, Paul is helping them understand your children of light. Don't get involved in that darkness. You have a powerful witness to people. But then he gives them a wake-up call in verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Wake up if you've been a sleeping Christian. Rise from the dead if you've been a sinner and let the power of light give you light. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly. Now the word in, in English, is an archaic word, but it would mean in English looking around. 
checking out your surroundings, right? That's a wise way to walk. But here it signifies accurately or correctly or consistently. In other words, walk in a godly way, not as fools, but wise. You've received the truth, walk in that truth. You've got light, walk in that light. Amen. Praise God. Exemplify the character that Jesus Christ has given you. And if you love the promises that God has given to you as a believer, then also love the principles he's given to you about how to live. Because you can't love his promises and hate his principles. And you can't have his promises if you don't live by his principles. Amen? So Paul says, so your people, that the enemies around you, the people that don't love Jesus Christ, that they will not be able to look at you and say they said one thing, but they lived another. Let your life and your words be the same. No duplicity in our lives. Verse 16. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. And this is an amazing verse. I preached from this before, but saw a couple new insights in this. It means buying up the moments which others seem to throw away. You know, there's some things that people don't want and they just throw it away and then you can buy it and it becomes valuable, right? Their trash is your treasure. Paul said there's some things that other people don't love. You love those things that are good and godly and, and buy up even the time that you have lost is kind of the implication of that. Every moment, every moment is important. Time is your chief commodity. My dad used to say, when you run out of time, you ain't got nothing, right? He didn't say ain't very much except that time. Amen. Redeem the time. Paul would write about this. Romans 13, 11, pulling in a couple parallel passages. And that knowing the time, that it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than we believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust there. Same idea as Ephesians 4. I'd ask for Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians 5 to be prepared, but I'm going to go past that passage, except go to verse 5. Verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 5. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Amen. We are the people of God. Back to Ephesians 5, 17. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Live understanding right from wrong, light from darkness. Where to draw the line in a world that loves gray rather than black and white. See things as God sees them. And then Paul draws another comparison to those immoral people he talked about earlier and us. Verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, 
wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. After studying the context of this passage, all the way back to verse 1, the behavior of those grossly ungodly people of that day makes this make even more sense. Because Paul is referring to the ungodly people in Ephesus who worship a pagan God, who get drunk and lose all sense of propriety. All the barriers are down. All the safeguards are gone. Everything that would tell you no is now distorted by drunkenness. And I've heard more than one story of someone who said, I was drunk and then I did that. I was high and then I did that. Under the influence, even a weak person's morals come crashing down. And those parades, those festivals that I refer to, the worship of Bacchus, were about drunkenness and immorality. They often go together. The lapses of judgment. Can't walk correctly like you should. Verse 15 says that we're to be sober. But Paul says, instead of being drunk on that, be filled with the Spirit. Be the kind of people who can be the light of the world, who can go into a dark place and be full of the Holy Ghost. And the darkness cannot stop you if you're filled with the Spirit. Amen. And because you're filled with the Spirit, Paul says, be a worshiper. Verse 19. Speaking to yourselves. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There's a little difference in what a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song may be. But it all has to do with worship. It all has to do with filling your life with godly music. Filling your life with godliness. Amen. Speaking to yourself, there's public worship and there's private devotion. Here he seems to be talking about private devotion, that this is what should be going through your mind. This should be what is in your heart. This should be what is on your lips, speaking to yourselves, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. I know you may not be good at it, but sing anyway. We may not give you a mic, but sing anyway. Singing, this is not about singing tonight, but singing is powerful. The Bible said he's put a song in my heart, even a praise unto our God. Amen? Making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always. Verse 20, Ephesians 5 and 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are the light of the world. So live like light. Walk in the light as he is in the light, right? And if you do that, John said, we'll have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, will cleanse us from all sins. If you'd please stand, 1 Peter 2 and 9. 1 Peter 2 and 9, but you are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, my own special people. Why are you that? Why did he choose us? Why did he make us a royal priesthood? Why did he make us his own special people? He gives us a purpose, a mission that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So live as sons and daughters of light. If there's any darkness in your life, and I'm talking about unconfessed sin, then repent of it tonight. Wherever you are, watching online, sitting in the house, standing in the house. There's something in your life that is more reflective of the darkness of sin than the light of Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus said to his disciples. I believe in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, the prince of this world comes. He's coming. And he has nothing in me. He can't find one thing in me, Jesus said, that belongs to him or is like him. The prince of this world's coming. He has nothing in me. None of us are perfect like Jesus Christ. But we can repent. We can come clean. We can choose to not let sin build up in our lives. We can choose to not be corrupt, dishonest, ungodly, etc. Tomorrow, wherever you go and whatever you're doing, how can you be the light of the world? You are, so let's be.